if Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> America's first. Blah blah blah. Blah blah blah. Sending out good vibes. Blah blah blah. Good vibes. Blah blah blah. Good vibes. Good vibes. Good vibes. Underneath breaths of deep gratitude and prayers for guidance and protection, and put on a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track, shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. Okay, guys, welcome back to the America Show. We are going to be chatting with Ronnie Pontiac a little bit later. A fun chat. Um, and we got, of course, Graham coming at us from his new studio, his new setup over there at Casa de Dunlop. Graham, my bald spot's getting bigger, Dunlop. It's really not a new studio. It's just the upstairs bedroom that I turned into the studio from a tiny little closet-like space downstairs. So You're moving on now? I feel good. I feel I feel uh, good though. It's it's not as cramped and like I, I couldn't even like back my chair out without bumping into things before. So now it's uh, it's like a full blown. Yeah, I got the sound panels everywhere and some artwork up. I got the artwork from our old studio up there. Some awesome listeners. I got yeah. So I've sort of you know I've got the banner, the old Grimerica banner from twenty fourteen on the wall. So yeah, it's 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 going good. And Ronnie Pontiac, what a what a great chat with this guy. The guy's got the best name ever. No, Pontiac? Pony, Ronnie Pontiac, yeah. That's just total eighties name. And oh, in the eighties he was and in the eighties he was working with Manly P. Hall himself. Oh, is that this one? That's right. Yeah, this is this one. Yeah. American American Metaphysical Religion is his book. And it's a tome. Like it is full of full of stuff, full of hidden gems about you know, the 1900s, 1800s and uh, metaphysical religion stuff that you don't hear about, you know, people like Alexander Wilder and uh, Max Theon, stuff like that. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool book. Pretty cool chat. Yeah, it was a good chat. Yeah, it was. You guys were, it was like, uh, it's, uh, it's sort of some, and there's some deep end of the pool stuff, especially if you listen to some of those Manly P. Hall books. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I was okay with doing that because I, I was asking him questions for my own sake in a way because it's sort of, this is, you know, it's been our journey. And so a lot of it might be deeper over the head maybe, but I didn't get a bunch of questions in. I mean, I wanted to ask him about intelligence agencies co-opting some of this stuff, if there was connections to the UN, some sort of more of the deeper sort of uh, new world order conspiracy type stuff that I didn't really get a chance to ask him, but we'll have him back on maybe in the summer when his book with his wife comes out, we can, we can have him or both of them on. Maybe we should have him on outlawed. I don't know. On outlawed? Grey America outlawed. Yeah. I don't know. Let's do it. If you guys haven't heard of outlawed, I don't know how the fuck that could be still at this point, but. Head over to GreatAmericaOutlaw.ca and check it all out. I mean, there's a bunch of episodes there you can cycle through. If you become a member, you can listen to all of the whole back catalog. There's, we're up over 100 episodes now. So, check Oh, out. well, geez, in the plus, it's uh, 100 and, 100 and uh, 
120 something maybe let me see here 143 on the plus and speaking of manly p hall i mean we have a new year's uh from january 1924 the all-seeing eye is out on Grimerica america outlawed as well speaking of manly p hall and it's like it's the newsletter his magazine from that month and we talk about the new year personality versus principle there's a bunch of uh, stories in there. It's awesome. And our last episode on Outlawed was Simon Essler um, talking about the family as a super organism and the Toronto protocols. That was amazing as well. He's great. Amazing. Oh, yeah. That's the one that just came out, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Good stuff. So what have you been up to other than moving studios? You got your flood fixed. That's good news. Yeah, I got a yeah, I got a leak fixed. It was just in the wall, so it wasn't a huge deal. But the carpet's still uh, still drying. Actually, it's pretty soaked. That's my old. Oh, that, yeah. That's. Did you like get one of? Did you pull it up and get one of those like blow under the carpet fans? You no. Should do I? I was. Th- I, I, was I just got a heater. They said the heater should be fine, but I mean, I didn't want to pull. It was really tight in that corner. I didn't want to really have to pull it up, but. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You know, sometimes like carpets what I pull do up real easy, and sometimes go to the threshold. Yeah, at the door. Yeah, I know. I know. Unscrew that, and you know, they'll have that special thing that's just three inches tall. It'll tuck right under the rug and blow under all of it. That's oh, what I would they, do. Really, eh? A three-inch tall fan, or I could probably put a heater. I could probably blow a heater from if, as long as I pull it up there, right? Yeah, you could like. Would you rip up the whole thing then? Are you saying, or would you just? Oh, you just just rip it up right at the door, and it's got a special. There's a special heater that guarantee like every rental place in town will have them. Oh wow! Okay, interesting. I've used them before. They work great. I have a little blue fan, but uh, you know that thing like slips under there. Perfect. It's probably pretty important to get it dry so it doesn't get all moldy, right? Yeah, you don't want mold there. I mean, it's pretty dry here, but I would. I would make sure you dry that out, even if you pulled back the carpet and just left it. For- so other than that, got a few resolutions. I want to cut back. I'm going to cut off sugar and caffeine for a while and see how that goes. I've been, I've been not so healthy lately, so I'm going to exercise, exercise daily, meditation, get wow. back into the swing of things. Yeah. Grab a new man done up. Well, I got to uh, hit bottom first usually. So I'm not making any resolutions. I'm gonna start getting back into the exercise. I've been kind of off the train ever since Egypt. I've had it's been hard to get back into it. Get back, you know. By the time we get back into the fucking swing of things from Egypt, took a couple of weeks, and then it was already like the holidays were creeping up on us. Totally. So you know, now it's just like I'm looking forward to things just finally, you know. And then, but then now, of course, we got this contact at the Kevin. This amazing event with these amazing people down in California coming up in Mount Shasta. You know, I didn't realize until today how far the drive was from the airport. From what? From Sacramento. Oh, what is it? Three hours and 45 minutes. Wow. So probably three that's and a gonna, half, honestly. That's going to be quite the van ride. It's a van ride and a half for sure. Yeah. But uh, it's got to be beautiful country. And just sort of creep up on the mountain the whole time. I mean, it'll be fantastic. I'm looking forward to getting down there. That'll be February 9th, 9th to 13th. So I my flight gets in around 3 o'clock, so the shuttles are going to leave around 4. And uh, we're going to head up to Mount Shasta with the mighty mighty Joe Roop, Owen Hunt, Brandon Powell, 
course, our buddy Greg Carwood from THC is swinging up there to hang out as well. And we're going to have a blast. We're going to do some hikes around Shasta. We're going to do the cold training like the Brandon Powell does, breath work, the cold shit where you get in the ice water. And, uh, you know, Owen is like a life coach type thing. So he's going to do that, like coming at you with the manifestation mindset sort of stuff and how to get the most out of your life. And Joe Root comes with the magic side. So it's going to be a great thing. And uh, head over to contactatthecabin.com. Click on the magic on the mountain button. Check it out. We got some spots left in the house and out of the house, camping and otherwise. So you guys can hit that shit up and come hang with us down Shasta. I mean, I think it's only like, Gotta be less than seven weeks away now, right? Like six yeah, weeks. Yeah. Six yeah. weeks. Also, a little hint here. Like if you're thinking about it, if you're on the fence, probably best to buy a ticket now before Carlwood starts talking about it on the show. Because I think Carlwood's gonna have uh Darren and, and the guys on to chat about it. So it's gonna reach some some people. That's right. It is. So you guys should jump on that. Come on down and hang out with us. We're gonna have a time. We've got a fabulous venue there. And uh, we're going to hang out for four days, do some hikes and do all that stuff and be in the shadow of that fucking great mountain there. We're going to have a time. And it's going to be like winter, so it shouldn't be too busy. I mean, it's California, but it'll still be a great time. I mean, the van ride will be half the fun. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's the cool part. thing about those trips is it's just hanging out with everybody and chatting about everything and anything. That's the best part. That is the best part. So check it out. Contact at thecabin.com. So what do you got for us? What do you want to do? Well, I mean, I was going down a rabbit hole looking for, uh, you know, appropriate uh, project operations, a little segment that we like to do in these lazy rambling intros. And I thought, you know, I went through one of these lists, like terrifying U.S. government projects. And I, I, I was looking at, you know, maybe Operation White Coat or Project Thor or Artichoke, of course. Artichoke's talking about like the MK Ultra thing where... They're talking about special interrogation techniques because it's kind of about hypnotism, which kind of fits into some of the questions I asked Ronnie Pontiac about mesmerism and how animal magnetism became quite a quite a thing. And now, of course, it's being used in all different various ways. <laughs> uh, so anyways, uh, but then I went I went from that into alchemy and I started reading these articles about modern day alchemists. So this isn't really very spiritual, but I found a Smithsonian article that I wanted to read you and also an article about from real, real clear science. So I thought instead of doing like sort of a secret project operation, kind of nasty thing, this is kind of more in a, in a fun spirit about the modern alchemists learning from the ancient alchemists. What's that noise? It looks military to me. Definitely military. Probably classified too. Dishfire, Prism, Sentry Eagle, Sigma, Mannerkin, Artichoke, MK Ultra. Operation Project. So links to these two articles are in the show notes. Uh, this one's called Modern Day Alchemists Routinely Make Gold, and it's from realclearscience.com. And it's 10 years old now, at least. And it's and it's talking, it got a little bit of history about the alchemists from the 1300s. So this is uh, Nicholas Flamel purchased a strange 21-page book penned in a language unbeknownst to him. Unbeknownst. This is, yeah. The minute yet mystifying tome utterly engrossed Flamel, who promptly decided to dedicate his life to unraveling its secrets. To whom so around, was it nounced? 
Yeah, well, this is the thing. So here you go. Who was it? Maybe. Uh, Around 1378, his quest led him to Spain, where he met a sage who identified the tome as a copy of the original book of Abramelum the Mage. Abram. Abramelin, Abramelin the mage, armed with this knowledge. So Flamel and his wife, armed with this knowledge, Perinel, deciphered enough of the writing to reveal the recipe for the prized philosopher's stone, which then laid, which then they used to transmute dung to gold and to concoct the elixir of life, a highly sought after potion that bestows the drinker with immortality. Or the story goes. In reality, the alchemists of antiquity unrelentingly toiled to attain immortality and achieve chrysophobia, the transmutation of other substances into gold. But by all factual accounts of history, they came up empty-handed. That's where I wouldn't agree. I think there's some accounts that say they did, but you know, you can go to adultbrain.ca to find some books on that. In the process, however, they laid the foundations for modern-day chemistry, so their efforts weren't completely fruitless. And those ancient alchemists of yore, if those ancient alchemists of yore magically came back to life today, that knowledge might be of little consolation. And they might even be jaundiced to learn that present-day alchemists routinely transmute gold on a daily basis. That's right. Thanks to modern science, alchemy is quite real. Today's disciplines, practitioners have different titles, nuclear and particle physicists, that's because gold can be manufactured within nuclear reactors to, by irradiating either platinum or mercury. Particle accelerators accomplish the same feat, though through different processes. So they say that by accelerating these particles to monumental speeds and smashing them together or into certain target materials, neutrons and protons are knocked free and new elements are created. So they talk about this one in Germany that can create 2 million new gold atoms each second. Gold atoms? Yeah. Have you heard of this before? That's going to make gold pretty cheap. That this particle accelerator, GSI in Germany, is doing this? And so that obviously prompts the question, where are the physicists hoarding all of that bling? The answer, of course, is that they keep it in the caves defended by dragons. No, that's crossed out. There isn't much bling produced in the first place. Two million atoms of AU may sound like a lot, but because those atoms are so infinitesimally small, GSI would have to operate around the clock for 50 million years just to produce one gram of gold. So while the gold trans... Yeah, I know. Now they're just disappointing us. So while the gold transmuting face of alchemy is entirely real, it's not in the least bit efficient or profitable. But who knows? Perhaps Nicholas Flamel is out there right now leading a quiet and unassuming immortal life with his wife, Perinel, and their gold-producing philosopher's stone, chuckling at our comparatively meager alchemical abilities. (laughs) That's how they get you. So this one's from Smithsonian, and it says, Alchemy may not have been the pseudoscience that we all thought it was. And this is from the Smithsonian mag. Although scientists could never quite turn lead into gold, again, I don't believe that, they did attempt some noteworthy experiments. Throughout much of the 20th century, the academic community had little patience with alchemists and their vain efforts to transmute base metals into gold. Any contemporary scholar who even dared to write about alchemy, historian Herbert Butterfield warned, would become tinctured with the kind of lunacy they set out to describe. 
But in the 80s, some revisionist scholars began arguing that alchemists actually made significant contributions to the development of science. Historians of science began deciphering alchemical texts, which wasn't easy. The alchemists, obsessed with secrecy, deliberately described their experiments in metaphorical terms laden with obscure references to mythology and history. For instance, text that describes a gold, a cold dragon who creeps in and out of the caves was code for saltpeter, potassium nitrate, a crystalline substance found on cave walls that tastes cool to the tongue. This painstaking process of decoding allowed these researchers for the first time to attempt ambitious alchemical experiments. Lawrence Principe, a chemist and science historian at Johns Hopkins, cobbled together obscure texts and scraps of 17th century laboratory notebooks to reconstruct a recipe to grow a philosopher's tree from a seed of gold. Supposedly, this tree was a precursor to the more celebrated and elusive philosopher's stone which would be able to transmute metals into gold. And the use of gold to make more gold would have seemed entirely logical to alchemists, Principe explains, like using germs of wheat to grow an entire field of wheat. So mix, mix specially prepared mercury and gold into a buttery, a buttery lump at the bottom of a flask. So this is this guy, Principe. And then he buried the sealed flask in a heated sand bath in his laboratory. One morning, he came into the lab to discover in, to his utter disbelief that the flask was filled with a glittering and fully formed tree of gold. The mixture of metals had grown upward into a structure resembling coral or the branching canopy of a tree minus the leaves. What intrigues Principe and his fellow historians, though, is the growing evidence that the alchemists seem to have performed legitimate experiments, manipulated and analyzed the material world in interesting ways and reported genuine results. And many of the great names in the canon of modern science took note, says Newman, a historian at Indiana University, Bloomington. So then Robert Boyle, one of the 17th century founders of modern chemistry, basically pillaged the work of the German physician and alchemist Senert, says Newman. When Boyle's French counterpart, Lavoisier, substituted a modern list of elements, oxygen, hydrogen, carbon, and others for the ancient four elements, earth, air, fire, water, he built on an idea that was actually widespread in earlier alchemical sources. The concept that matter was composed of several distinctive elements in turn inspired Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, his work on optics, notably his demonstration that the multiple colors produced by a prism could be reconstituted into white light. So other scholars at times have responded with outrage to this idea, like Principe was once confronted at an academic conference by a member of the audience who was literally shaking with rage that I could defame Boyle in this way. But younger academics had taken up alchemy as a hot topic. The early revisionist uh, research, says Principe, cracked open the seal and said, hey, look, everybody, this is not what you thought it was. In a mark of that new acceptance, the Museum Kunstpalast in Dusseldorf, Germany, We'll present a show. Oh, this is talking about presenting a show, which is, I think this is quite old. Yeah, this is back in 2014. Um, so they were going to present a show. Let me see where that was. Um, along with alchemy-influenced artworks from Brugel, the Elder, to Anselm Kiefer. will include an exhibit on Principe's Philosopher's Tree Experiment. So 
the other thing that they don't mention, of course, is that the alchemists believe that you had to believe you, your intention and your thoughts at the time played a huge role in the alchemy. Like you couldn't have a, a skeptic go in and do the process of the alchemist if he didn't believe it was going to happen. It would not work. You have to believe. Does this new view of alchemy make the great names in the early history of science seem more derivative and thus less great? We were just talking in my class about the rhetoric of novelty, says Princip, and how it benefits people to say that their discoveries are completely new. But that's not how scientific ideas develop. They don't just sort of come to someone in a dream out of nowhere. Yes, they do. New scientific ideas tend to develop out of older ones by a slow process of evolution and refinement. From that perspective, the scientific revolution may have been a little less revolutionary than we imagined. Better to think of it as a transmutation, like the alchemist's quest to change lead into gold. That was a pretty good article from the Smithsonian. Considering. That was not bad. That was not bad. Considering they leave out the important parts. Well, I mean, they always do. That's how they get you. That's right. They get you just enough to shut the fuck up. So are you, uh, any news on your Twitter account or uh, what's going on there? The Twitter Not files are I out said, and fuck you. things are crazy in that space. I'll check right now, but. Uh, you don't think they're going to come back and say, no, we don't think you're now uh, hating on politicians and stuff. The last I, I heard okay. it was not looking good. But let's take a look, see. Twitter. Uh, your account is suspended and is not permitted to do anything. My appeal was denied. Says I can file another appeal. I'll put please help. All right, we'll see. I've appealed again. <coughs> Yeah, it's been interesting. They had actually they had a couple of good debates on actually on Twitter. Um, uh, sort of love and hate, uh, fr sort of frustrating at one sense, and but I mean it was good to see scientists actually discussing and debating stuff. <laughs> Who would think that that was such a would be such a refreshing conversation to hear scientists listening to each other from different sides of the spectrum? I'd love to get in on that debate, but I guess I can't. No, no, you can't. You can't even watch it. What we need you guys to get in on is that support train, grandamerica.ca slash support. Of course, this is, sometimes you guys forget, this is a value for value podcast. So we do produce it. We put it all out there, put all our efforts in and get it out there for you guys every week for going on 10 years, all for free, uh, in the hopes that if you are getting some value from this show, if it's adding some value to your day, to your commute, to your workout, wherever you're listening, you can head over to grandamerica.ca slash support today. Sign up for a monthly or make a one-time donation or whatever you can do. That's the only way we pay our bills around here for this show. So America.ca slash support, guys, if you can, when you can, sign up. Let us know you like the show and that it's worth our time to keep doing the show and that it's of some value to some people. America.ca slash support. We would love you for it. What else you got? Well, I mean, another great way to support the show is to go to adultbrain.ca where we do have some of the books that we discussed with our guest, Ronnie Pontiac. We have Manly P. Hall's books. 
um, lectures of an ancient philosophy and secret teachings of all ages. We have Isis Unveiled, the book that's mentioned as well, volume one and two there. A bunch of awesome, old, ancient, esoteric works. But we also have a new one that's one of my favorites. It's just a little a little book called The Ancient Mysteries and Modern Masonry. And the first half is kind of about the ancient mysteries and less about masonry. And then the second half, it gets into masonry. But it's kind of along the vein of uh, some of the other books from Blavatsky and from um, who's the guy that we put out uh, – called the arcane schools yarker john yarker john yarker kind of on that vein as well but it's there's a little i'll I'll read a little um, passage from it and it's talking about the object of the mysteries so this is like initiation into the mysteries the ancient mysteries was the instruction and development of man so they said that great emphasis was laid upon man's immortality and the object and purpose of the mysteries was to fit him for a blessed state beyond these true, thus, these mysteries taught the condition of the post-mortem state, and strove to develop in the candidate the powers that would enable him to verify the instruction for himself. Antiquity had held that there was a science of the soul, a knowledge of things unseen, a gnosis, and now that the possibility of extending the bounds of consciousness beyond the physical plane has been proven by many experiments in psychism, the claim of the mysteries is not beyond rational belief that the ego may transcend the limits of the body and become conscious on the higher planes of nature verifies the truth of all the mysteries of all ages and proves that nature's God in infinite wisdom through the constant progress or development of his children is initiating them from every field of labor to aid in his mighty work. And it also talks about um, the story of the death, the burial and the resurrection of a crucified savior. It goes into like all these saviors, how they've all been through this, the same thing, you know, in each religion, a historical narrative of a personal savior is virgin born, is crucified, rises from the dead, and finally ascends into heaven. And it's like, I think the the initiations were um, mimicking this or an allegory of this. You know, you go in three days, three days, you, you awake, you go into the dark tunnels for three days, you come out, you know, resurrection, resurrected, basically. It's kind of a good summary of the way I've been thinking about these mystery schools, but this is the first book that sort of put it all together in a simple kind of coherent manner. So there you have it. It's in adultbrain.ca. That's A D U L T B R A I N dot C A. Adult brain, baby. Check it out. If it wasn't for Adam Brain, we'd be in real trouble around here. <laughs> I mean, real trouble. Yeah. America.ca slash support. It's important. I was going to do the social media jingle earlier, but I guess I won't bother because yeah. I, we did the social media sort of thing. I mean, being kicked off of half of the social media we used to do, do is, uh, you know, presents a problem. Tell Elon, let us back. It's the profound quote of the week. Darren, can you guess it? It's the profound quote of the week. Can you guess the human who spoke it or wrote it down? Profound quote of the week. What you got, bitch?
Oh, me? I thought you had social media stuff. That was the quote jingle, bro. Oh, that was the quote. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a trip. I was just in La La Land there. I was waiting for you to do your social media stuff. So here's a here's a quote. Guess who says this? Okay. Some some even believe we are a part are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and am proud of it. <laughs> Hillary Clinton. No. No. Go back. Back. It's a way it's a ways older, yeah. Hmm. Henry Ford? No. Close. Probably around that era. Dale Probably Con- knew Henry Ford. Andrew Carnegie? No. No, it's more conspiratorial than that. It's like it's Rothschild. Close, yeah, the other one. Rockefeller. Uh, yeah. David well, it took me like seven guesses. So not bad. All right, what else you got? Sam, That's about it, really. About I mean, it. yeah, this let's get the fuck out of here. Just a big happy new year to everybody. Happy and New Year. Follow First through your, new year. on your resolutions and because Graham's yeah, gonna awesome. we're gonna check in on this motherfucker every week and see how yeah. he's doing on his resolutions. Yeah. yeah. You notice I made none, but I was trying to be a little better all the time. I had to. I know I I've been to. slacking on my working out, but I'm just so busy moving the house around and putting carpet in, doing this, and doing that, and traveling and Christmas and fuck. But I'm going to get back at it. I am. Anyway, I think that's about it. We hope you guys enjoyed that. Did you go to Bile for uh, Mr. Pontiac? Oh, that's a good a question. Um, I can pull one up here real quick. Our friends at Inner Traditions is selling his book. He worked as Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. He's an award-winning documentary producer and has written for Invisible College Magazine, Utopia, Metempsychosis, Occult of Personality, and Reality Sandwich. Lives in L.A. He's got this awesome book out now called American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. Um, check it out and he's been working on this like I think he's been keeping notes of this for decades and it finally um, coalesced into this tome of metaphysical beauty there you have it enjoy the chat Ronnie Pontiac Ronnie Pontiac, welcome to Gray America. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. 
Yeah, this will be an interesting chat. We've been talking a lot about metaphysical subjects, and uh, your book is is like a modern tome of of uh, American metaphysical religion. I mean, where do you want to start? Well, I was hoping you'd have some questions. Oh, I got lots of questions. Yeah. Well, how about? I mean, I, I mean, I guess we can't leave uh, you know your background a little bit, like working with Manly P. Hall. I mean, we should probably just talk about that a little bit and how you got interested in all this before writing this this massive book. How about we start there? Okay. This book began at the Philosophical Research Society when I was working as Manly Hall's research assistant. I had access to his vault because I was working on an alchemical biblio that he was publishing of his collection. And so I got to look at all the books that were in there, many of which were not alchemical. And one of them was this big leather bound tome that had inside it what looked to be a newspaper. And this newspaper, it turned out, was called The Platonist and was published oh, right. in the Midwest, which was really at that time still a frontier area because this was around the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral, although industrialization was beginning to creep in. And there was already a smog problem in St. Louis at that time, which was the nearest city. But in this small town nearby, Osceola, it was called and still is, um, this newspaper was published and it was filled with translations by Thomas Taylor of the Neoplatonists. But it also had translations by someone named Thomas Johnson of the Neoplatonists and by someone named Alexander Wilder, whose books I had run into in Mr. Hall's work and in the library. I was fascinated by the idea that somebody thought it was a good idea to publish a newspaper about Platonism in the Old West. I just couldn't imagine what this thing was. And so I approached him about it, and he didn't know much about these people either. And that really surprised me because he was a walking encyclopedia of this kind of history. He said it was something that was worth looking into, though, and maybe I would be able to uncover some things. And it, it just started this process that it was like grabbing hold of a small thread and you pull on it and then it, it turns out to be this gigantic thing. And uh, it turned out that, for example, Alexander Wilder was involved with Madame Blavatsky and was, in fact, the editor of Isis Unveiled. And it turned out that Thomas Johnson was one of the lodge leaders of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. And it turned out that they were publishing uh, Eliphas Levi stuff translated by Abner Doubleday, of all people. So it became even more fascinating to me because it seemed to reveal a side of America that had somehow been forgotten or censored. And uh, that's really how it began. So it was an extension of working with him. The other key moment for me was the discovery that a lot of new research was arriving. And there's a complete sea change in academia that occurred basically around 2000, but started more or less in the 80s, where the idea, uh, I mean, I think, um, if I, I hope I pronounce his name right, but uh, Wouter Honograph recently wrote an amazing book in which he, he basically says, it's not up to us to decide if these things are true. It's up to us to find out what happened and present it as accurately as we can. And because of that, there is so much new research about all of these subjects from the people that I was studying in the beginning, who we now have a lot of information about, to the Rosicrucians and every other aspect of the influences from all over the world and 
the activities going on in America, going back to the earliest days of colonization. So I wanted to take that information because I'm I've been lucky to have a lot of academic friends. And it's information that most people who are interested in these subjects don't ever know is there because these academic books are so expensive and they're also difficult to read. So my my mission here was to sort of carry on Manley Hall's tradition, but bring to bear all the new research. And I was so often struck by I wish I could have shown him the new research because he would have been thrilled by by the new information that's been uncovered, some of which radically changes our perception about these historical events. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially because he didn't really know. I mean, out of all the work he's been done and all the sort of encyclopedic type books he's written, didn't really know about about that, which is fascinating. Yes, he was. Well, he was like so many writers, um, including I'm sure myself, we're all victims of our time. And he could only rely on the research that had been done so far. And the amount of prejudice toward these subjects in academia is really stunning. For a long time, all you would you would see academia writing about in these areas was the institutions of established churches. And they considered writing about the Pentecostals as radical. So there was no attention given to this. And even in, in, in huge areas, I'm just completing a book now on uh, it's as well as it's called uh, right now, it's called Rosicrucian Origins in Context. And I have to rewrite the entire book because uh, a great scholar named Nadine Ackerman came out with her study of Queen Elizabeth of Bohemia and everything about Elizabeth, her letters, all the amazing paperwork that remained about her had never been examined by scholars because they thought a woman wasn't really worth studying. And to make matters even worse, the sort of innate and misogyny at that time of those scholars, uh, they, they projected a lot of things on Elizabeth that weren't true at all. For example, there was a famous story that she had encouraged her husband Frederick to take the throne of Bohemia, thereby triggering uh, the terrible defeat at White Mountain and causing the Thirty Years' War. Well, the truth was that she she didn't give him an opinion about the matter because she thought that it was up to him to make the decision, and that was in her letters. She also turned out to be much more capable and much more politically oriented than historians had given her credit for. And that's just a a tiny sample of what Ackerman uncovered by going back into these archives that have been neglected for generations. Mm. So Mr. Hall did not have access to all this this great new stuff or to the original archives. I mean, he went into archives when he was working on some of these books, like The Secret Teachings, but he didn't have a whole community of scholars to support him at the time. Right, right. I mean, there's also it seemed like he was also pushing back just like sort of theosophy was too against the materialism, not only the dogma of the church, but materialism, which was sort of plowing its way through in the in the, uh, you know, since the Enlightenment, I guess. But I, I feel like something something happened there in the early 1900s. I mean, did you come across anything like that? Like is materialism still also part of the problem besides sort of the patriarchy and all that? Well, I think that's a very interesting question, by the way. Um, the Rosicrucian question is, is, I think, at the heart of it in some ways, because here you see a, a battle that's being fought where where the sides are, are clear and yet there's, they're, they're, everyone's fighting everyone. So to clarify that, 
you have the Rosicrucians themselves who we're going to call them that, but let's say it might be the people who created the Rosicrucian hoax might be a better way to say it. We're not really sure what happened there, but I like to think of, of Andre as a 19 year old college student influenced by his professors and writing this thing that's closer to a Ginsburg poem than it is to a mystical tract. There's a lot of social criticism in it. There's humor in it. And in both the Fama and Confessio and even in the chemical marriage. And, uh, I think it was it was a radical statement of of disgust with a stagnant status quo, which was the Catholic Church and the the Holy Roman Empire. And in the very beginning, I think they may have been trying to curry favor with Rudolf II, who at the time was still emperor and who loved alchemy and the occult and fascinating character, just really an important influence in in allowing all of the stuff to flourish. Um, but they they were sucked up into the disaster of of uh, the Bohemian winter uh, when Frederick was defeated and the whole Protestant cause fell apart for a, a while there. And I think what happened was that they were on one hand creating science. They were they were their astrology and their alchemy were leading to chemistry and to uh, astronomy. And these struggles can be seen, for example, in, in the case of Robert Flood, who many people have, have simply said is a Rosicrucian, but who actually left uh, a signed oath that he was not a Rosicrucian, which he published in a book of his uh, that was published posthumously. Um, Flood was somebody who very much felt that he was fighting against the the evil of the Catholic Church and, on the other hand, of Islam, but also he was he was pushing forward science, not really realizing, I don't think, that he was giving materialism the air it needed to, ah, to really burn bright. And right. so part of what happened with him was he he had this ruined his reputation. He had a pamphlet war with a fellow who said that the weapons salve, which in case, in case your listeners don't know what that is, that back in the day. The, the so-called doctors used to believe that a certain salve could be made that if a, if a sword wounded you and you had the sword but not the patient, you could put the salve on the blood on the sword and it would heal the wound. And this was also widely used for wounded horses and was very popular and people thought that it worked. Well, someone came up with a pamphlet that said this stuff doesn't work and this guy, Robert Flood, who writes about it, he should realize that this is evil. This stuff isn't in the Bible. And if anybody's doing this healing, it must be Satan. So Flood engaged with him in a pamphlet war. And they were basically arguing over the Bible. And Flood was saying there's lots of ways of healing that aren't explicitly in the Bible. That doesn't mean that they're evil. But at the same time, there was another writer who Flood was having another pamphlet war with, whose response to the weapon salve was, I'm a doctor. This doesn't make sense. And in my experience, it doesn't work. Some people heal, perhaps because they have stronger systems and other people don't. We don't know why. But this weapon salve thing is a ridiculous idea. And here we see materialism beginning to, to raise its head. And this is also at the time when Messer, I think that's how it's pronounced, was beginning to write. And he wrote this book called Harmony Universal. I think that's the name. And he was in touch with Flood also. And he was a full-blown materialist. 
he came out and said uh it's m-e-s-s-e-r-e i think is how it's spelled not 100 sure and when was this again like this is right at the time of flood and this is like 1620s to 1640s something like that and so uh, to me, the the Rosicrucian revolution, in a, in a strange way, gave birth to materialistic science. Uh, not that it intended to, but it it gave such an impetus to science that that people who were also trying to escape the Catholic Church, but purely in the name of science, were inspired further. So another example there would be Kepler. If you read uh, in the Confessio, you'll see that there's a spot where um, we are told that that we should not cloud our understanding with vanities. That's how I'll put it. And one of the vanities mentioned it, it has in it some terminology that is freshly out of Kepler's book, um, Astronomia Nova. And so we can see that the, the Rosicrucians here are actually struggling against science while they're promoting it, which is, which is rather strange. And Kepler, of course, and the author of Universal Harmony, they, they became the, the founders of what is now our modern world where materialism kind of rules everything, or at least um, the pretense of it, because I think yeah. that, right? Because <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I find that in writing this book, what blew my mind was, how how many of these supposedly rational people were actually closeted metaphysicians? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was kind of what I was going to ask you is how did that change your mind at all about the battle against materialism that's been happening? So, but before we get, we go there. So did the next century then did Mesmer do the same thing, you know, uh, create more fire for materialism by coming out with animal magnetism and mesmerization, basically where, where all the, you know, now a bunch of people were able to say, oh, now it's just uh, it's just a normal sort of part of nature. All this uh, all these, you know, uh, maybe not divination, but, you know, the oracles, somnambulism, all this stuff now has a materialistic explanation. I think that's a good point. Uh, I definitely even in spiritualism, there was a, a, a you can see the struggle even amongst the mediums where they they begin by. I mean, if you consider a medium of that era, you have a woman who probably would not be allowed to speak in a room where men were gathered. Women had no voice in society at that time and were expected to to be silent. Now, all of a sudden, she's channeling a male spirit and she can fill an auditorium full of men who will listen to every word she has to say or the spirit has to say, however you want to see it. That is a powerful thing to happen to a human being who's been so utterly marginalized. And so it, it kind of carries them away. And then at a certain point with many of these mediums, whatever happens, either their, their power is waning or they seem to start to resort to fraud. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, there are some that are frauds from the beginning, but there, there do seem to be genuine mediums or at least mediums who seem to be sincere who who begin to acquire this fraudulent veneer and these activities enter into their their it's very strange i mean you read these these reports from very intelligent men who are studying the medium and they're blown away by what comes up and then the medium is caught red-handed 2 years later doing a trick that's embarrassing to write about 
It's it's almost reminds me of the modern sort of UFO stuff with uh, who was that guy in the uh, Adamski kind of thing. Like there's a mm-hmm. bunch of UFO, UFO researchers who were the same thing. It seemed to be legit, and then it became fraudulent after. Exactly, and so I think that that even some of those mediums. So later on, they become reflective because. Once they they are caught, then then they'll say, "Well, I, I was this was satanic. I'm now Christian," and then they'll renounce the Christianity. They only did that because they were trying to find a place in society, but that <laughs> didn't work for them either. And then they'll say statements like, "I never really thought it was spirits. I thought it was all me. I thought it was maybe telepathy, like a natural human function that I just happened to have." Yeah. And then they'll stop again and say, "No, maybe it was the spirits." But the point I'm trying to make here is that you can feel them struggling with the idea that there isn't an external supernatural or divine force they're interacting with, that it's all nature. And I agree with you. I think this is the creeping kind of effect of as science is born and as capitalism and other societies, uh, gov- forms of government embrace science as, a, as such a powerful ally. And I think that, that it sort of brainwashed the world uh, in a sense, with this particular point of view, while while ignoring all the rest, and that essentially is 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 what my book is about. Is that uh, you see in my book how much of American history has been colored by people with very similar pursuits to each other from all around the world, and we are all growing up feeling, if we have these interests, that we are oddballs that we we're people that don't fit in that we we're just some kind of fringe thing that never had a place in america and every time we have an election the drum is banged for america the christian nation and how how this country was established entirely in that way and the the truth is and i do believe that my book shows this is that metaphysical religion or what's now being called in academia American metaphysical religion has been at least as important, if not more important than Christianity from the very beginning. And that, in fact, I would argue and do in the book that Christianity has been massively influenced by American metaphysical religion and that American Christianity may bear more resemblance to American metaphysical religion than it does to European and Middle Eastern Christianity. Right, right. And it's it's a melting pot of metaphysical stuff, just like it was a melting pot of people and cultures that came over. And the difference is that materialism pushed its way through. Exactly. So uh, uh, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. So how did you... Uh, so what made you come up with like, like sort of a, an all-encompassing... Like you, I mean, you kind of answered it already, but you wanted to come up with this all-encompassing book that would that would explain because it, it does reach back to thousands of years ago, right? A lot of this stuff does stem that far back, but mm-hmm. you know, it's been brought over to America. So, is that why you wanted to kind of encompass all this? Like, I guess my question is, uh, why such a grand uh, book or plan? I guess you know, it got away from me. It. Uh, <laughs> It was something that it started out as as smaller essays for a blog called Newtopia in the 2010s. And I didn't really have any intention of making it a book. I, I just absorbed all this research and I felt a need to to write it down so I could share it with other people. And and also just for myself to have it all put down in a somewhat consistent and organized fashion. 
And to my shock, a lot of academics reached out and they were excited by my research and they helped me go further. So the, the key moment for me was a friend of mine who actually worked for Manley Hall. Um, his name was Arthur Johnson. He was a, a stupendous person. He played guitar for Lena Horne and many, many famous uh, musicians and uh, was an um, unbelievable jazz guitar player, just really one of the greats. And he worked as Manley Hall's uh recording engineer for the lecture. So if you're listening to Manley Hall lectures from the 70s on, that's him recording it. And he also was often Manley Hall's driver. We became good friends and he was he became ill and was passing. I, I hadn't seen him in a while. He had moved to Monaco um, to live with the love of his life. And he called myself and, and Tamara Lucid. Tamara is my wife and my partner and all this. And he just, man, he put the fear of God in us. You know, he was dying and he had a lot of work. He had, he had a two foot stack of manuscripts that he'd never digitized or finished. And he said, he said, don't do what I did. He, he told her to write her memoir about her experiences with Manly Hall because nobody else had the kind of experiences with him that she did. And he told me to take those essays and do something with them before it was too late. And she started working on, on her memoir first and, and she finished it ironically just days before he died, which was just before his birthday. She was going to give it to him for his birthday present. And he never was able to see it because he passed and it just it really made us realize that we we were fortunate to have the time and and covid arrived to to lock us down and give us even more time to work on these materials and so in working on it and looking at all the notes that i had put together over years and years because even um as you may know as a musician i you know we would tour and stuff and when we would tour, I would go to libraries, I'd go to bookstores and just find things and, and, and either buy them and send them home or, or, or take notes in for, from them. And I had all this stuff. And as I began to work and I saw how they all fit together, that was the amazing thing to me was how much the influence between these different uh, eras was so tightly woven into certain ideas, the, the Hermetica Neoplatonism, uh, authors like Agrippa, how often uh, Eliphas Levi came up in the most unexpected places. He's a little later, but uh, finding out that um, when I was studying early alchemy, that the presidents of Yale University and Harvard University were alchemists, and that the most shocking of all to me, that the, the son of the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, the first governor, John Winthrop, the John Winthrop Jr., the future governor of Connecticut Colony, was a full-blown alchemist, Rosicrucian, Paracelsian doctor who, when he moved to America to follow his father, he marked his crates full of alchemical material with D's Monus Hieroglyphica. I mean, that's right in the beginning of this country's colonization, and here you have... Uh, a guy who, who told everyone, I went to Europe to find Rosicrucians, 
but I didn't find any. So I just tried to live my life as close to their ideals as I could. Is there any from the late 1800s, early 1900s that that you that you found that did didn't get the respect or recognition that they might get in the near future? I, a number of them, really. I I think I do think that Alexander Wilder. Uh, I recently gave a lecture for the European Theosophical Society's historical conference about him, which should be up fairly soon. And um, he. This guy is, besides having the coolest name ever, Alexander Wilder, he wrote about all of these subjects. And in fact, you could almost say that that some of his works have an almost Manly Hallish, uh, the way that Manly Hall would survey all these this, this wide area of history and find the links of influence and similarities and beliefs in the tradition all the way through. This is something that Wilder did in his own books. He was also uh, what they called then an eclectic physician, which was really the beginnings of holistic doctoring. He was concerned about the psychology of the patient. He was more interested in herbs than in the kind of very questionable cures that that so-called professional physicians were using at the time. So he pioneered uh, holistic medicine. He was also part of the the team of aldermen who kicked Boss Tweed out of politics in New York and helped clean it up briefly. He was also the editor of Isis Unveiled for Madame Blavatsky, and his reminiscences of her are most fascinating. And he was also a, a key figure in uh, the creation of the mag, the uh, newspaper I was telling you about, which was called The Platonist. And he remained a contributor throughout its history and was uh, really, I think, the best friend in many ways of the editor, Thomas Johnson, who's another person, I think, who deserves... Uh, a lot more attention. This this man was uh, the son of a, a, I believe, a Confederate senator. Um, he grew up to be mayor, and he he ran a bank in this small town. And he loved Thomas Taylor and Plato and Neoplatonism, just knowledge in general. In fact, the Platonist was the first place uh, that you could read in America about Sufism. He he actually started a small side chapter of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor that was devoted to studying Sufi beliefs. Uh, he knew he'd studied Hindu beliefs and he exchanged letters with Emerson and others because he was considered an expert on Plato and the Neoplatonists. But he was very frustrated that that he couldn't get credit for, for his accomplishments there because he hadn't been properly trained in a German university, which was a must at that time. Uh, he became involved then with theosophy. He was an important influence there. And then he switched off and became a lodge leader for the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. So he he has a, a, a huge influence in, in terms of who he connected with and, and how he provided them with this knowledge of Platonism. And he makes a very interesting contrast to somebody like Kenneth Guthrie. I think the Guthrie brothers are important, too. They were the grandsons of Francis Wright, who was once called the Red Harlot of Liberty. She was a British woman, kind of by way of Scotland, who uh, came to America as a young woman who just inherited money. And she was in love with the whole concept of America. This is very early on. She was uh, hanging out with people like Lafayette. And uh, she she got advice from Jefferson and then later from Andrew Jackson and uh, she met some of the early leaders, and, and on one hand, she was like the earliest feminist 
in America, but she was also meeting some of the people that were involved in harmonial philosophy in its very earliest form, even before Andrew Jackson Davis, where they were building these kind of communities, trying to uh, create specialized communes or towns, if you will, where where people would study uh, Rosicrucian ideas while they were doing practical work. And she she's a fascinating story, but her, her grandchildren... Uh, the Guthrie brothers, uh, one of them ran St. Mark's of the Bowery Church, and he's really the guy that gave it the reputation that it still has as as a place where people like Allen Ginsberg and Patti Smith and others came to to do their earliest performances. Uh, back in the day, he had Khalil Gibran there. He would bring in Native American chiefs to do rituals. He, he really was... Um, trying to show people the, the grand variety of spiritual paths and how they all can be related to Christianity. While his brother, Kenneth, who was also rector of a church, they're both Episcopalians. Um, he was uh, a sort of like Thomas Johnson or Thomas Taylor. He did many translations, uh, Plotinus and Proclus and Plato and would self-publish. And it's very interesting to contrast him with Thomas Johnson because you see how important timing is. In the case of Thomas Johnson, he had a, he had a pretty good run there. He was able to get the Platonist out. He had support from people like Ralph Waldo Emerson and from Alcott and others who were, who were fascinated with Plato. There were Plato clubs that had grown up in America, often filled with uh, women who were studying Plato and, and inviting lecturers to come and speak and having parties for Plato's birthday and things like that. Uh, not that long later, Kenneth Guthrie shows up and it's all gone. And he's just this voice crying in the wilderness, publishing these books that are utterly ignored. Uh, it, it was fascinating to me to see see these different waves and how if Kenneth Guthrie, for example, had been born uh, you know, 40, 50 years earlier, he probably would be a much more notable historical personality than he is. And I found many lost people like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's what I found fascinating with that is it is full of stuff that you just you just never hear about. You don't know about, which is. Yeah. Weird. So, yeah. Um, What did the did the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor? Is that the same brotherhood that Blavatsky talks about? And if so, when did that like, because from all the books I've read, we've we've got some Blavatsky books on audio and uh, also Manly P. Hall too. But, but it seemed like they were always just called it the Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. When it's did it very, became known as that, or if it was the same one? It's a complicated question. Um, I think uh, K. Paul Johnson has done some great work there, and and he was also, I have to say, a huge mentor to me while I was doing this process. Uh, he he's got some very interesting finds in that area. And it is, it's, it's unclear because there was something going on in Egypt where Madame Lavatsky did visit people who were involved with the Hermetic Brotherhood there. And she definitely gained teachings and possibly some direction from them. Now, was this the same Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor as Max Theon was involved with? And Max Theon's involvement with the American Brotherhood of Luxor is also confusing because he he actually does as Jocelyn Godwin has shown us has really did very little in terms of influencing the American chapters and his biggest involvement I would say 
and I think Godwin also argues this, was when the chapters had to be dissolved because there was a scandal around uh, one of the leading members of it who turned out to have been a criminal in England at one time. I don't, I don't think he really was a criminal. I think he was just, he did some kind of a mail fraud thing to get enough money to get himself out of the predicament he was in it and got busted for it. And, but that, that followed him. And in fact, pictures of him uh, when he was in prison were passed around in America uh, to discredit the the brotherhood. And Max Theon came in at that point to dissolve it. And that was about the most he did for the brotherhood. My, my personal feeling is that, that these were related, but different groups. Um, I think that it's hard to differentiate between people who are taking advantage of the opportunity and, and the genuine thing. So I wonder about Max Theon, for example, because his own teachings especially what happened after the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor when he was his wife was channeling a lot of the material, but even before it, really don't much reflect the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor at all. Um, we're looking more in the direction of people like Kingsford and, and Hardinge Britain, some of these, these amazing female occult writers who seem to have been an influence on uh, whoever the the author of Light of Egypt actually was, and of course, Light <laughs> of Egypt emerged from from the Hermetic Brotherhood in a sense. Um, so it, it, these it's it's so wonderful to me because these are all these little groups of people who are who are out there without the benefit that we have now of all of this context and information that we Being can at find. Your fingertips, yeah. These yeah. people are are to me. I I find them very courageous because. They're daring to, to, to explore these, these tributaries of spirituality that have been discredited for generations. And they're, they're not only doing that, but they're, they're innovating on it. And they're having their own spiritual experiences. So members of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor are looking in those mirrors that have been sanctified. And they're, they are seeing visions. And some of those visions are turning into uh, books and, and ideas. And, and you can Light of Egypt is, is an interesting book, and uh, there's all sorts of criticism about it, including the fact that it doesn't seem to have much to do with Egypt. But <laughs> um, but on the other hand, here's a guy who was talking about uh, atoms, as uh, Richard Smalley recently pointed out to me, and, and, and that the atom would be split in the future at a time when people didn't believe the atom could be split. So they were definitely tuning into something. And that's another thing that kept me writing because – I found that even sometimes amongst the most fraudulent of them, there would be some gem of wisdom that would just blow your socks off. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, and and I kind of want to keep going on around the vein of misunderstanding uh, the past spiritual or occult work, like that you you mentioned, and I'm glad you mentioned this a couple times in your book, at least about. Uh, about the definitions nowadays. So like we've come such a far way now with, with, with metaphysical new age sort of spiritual stuff. And also, you know, the, the overt satanic symbolism that's going on, the, the, uh, the still materialism kind of still there sort of running things in the background somehow, even though most people believe that there's more to our consciousness than, than is, you know, is made to believe so, but, but there's terms like, you know, Lucifer, the occult, even as a term that, and I heard this like 10, 15 years ago, but it didn't really hit me as much as it does now that, 
Manly, and you would know this more than anybody probably, Manly just, he thought of a cult as what they originally thought of it was, right? I mean, a lot of the spiritual work was a cult just because it was hidden, because it wasn't really known. But now it's got such evil connotations. So has there been a real big misunderstanding as well from, um, and I mean, we can dig into, I kind of want to dig into sort of black magic, white magic arguments as well. But has, has there been a really big misunderstanding? I, well, I know it's I think, a you're, I think you're being but... kind by calling it a misunderstanding. I think that that first of all, so much of it does does ultimately uh, hail from cultures like Egypt and from uh, ancient Greece and from India, and and these ideas were circulating far in the past, and uh, we've seen the possibility in the writing of Nodovich. And then when they found that there was that somebody else was able to go and find the same manuscript that Nodovich said he found and translated it and reported that he, that there is a manuscript that exists in a monastery that says that somebody from the middle East named Isa came there and studied Buddhism. Um, so, so we may have evidence that even Jesus was, was really trying to teach Buddhism to a middle Eastern culture and in the process, it got somewhat mangled. But there was always a stream of interest, even in the church itself, even especially among Jesuits when that order began, uh, in the Neoplatonists, in the Hermetic writing. And there were attempts to legitimize these now considered occult sources uh, by saying that they that they were uh, sort of... Uh, suggestions or, or 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 foreshadowing of Christianity. And so therefore they were legitimate because they were versions of the truth. But at a certain point, and I and I wonder myself if if the Rosicrucians had something to, to do with in the 30-year war had something to do with making it so much more virulent because it was demonized earlier. It was it was a form of heresy. It was paganism. The church was vicious in destroying paganism. Um, no modern corporation could have been more devoted to to wiping out the competition. And so, and yet they would be tolerant of Jesuits, for example, who were studying Neoplatonism, which is clearly paganism, and therefore should be satanic under the church. But they, they had more of an awareness at times of these nuances. Now, as we progress... This becomes uh, partially, perhaps, in the fight against materialism, the whole thing became became more cathected, and 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 the the ability to be more tolerant of other beliefs seems to have diminished. And there was a very concerted effort to disempower women, disempower people of color, disempower anyone whose traditions might include some of these what we now call occult ideas, and. So it wasn't quite, a, I mean, I think there is a misunderstanding, but it was oh, also yeah, yeah. a deliberate was effort, yeah, yeah. a yeah. deliberate effort to demonize all of these areas. And, and so, I mean, I know people uh, who growing up in, in Judeo-Christian culture um, who were drawn to Satan because that was the only alternative choice. Like they felt like, Oh, I know I don't like Christianity. Yes, yeah, this, yeah, I don't yeah. like this, so now I'm going to embrace Satan. Yeah, yeah. And and that was also another motivation to me to write the book because 
I felt like it's such a pity because we really have an incredible wealth, a, a heritage. I mean, a, a treasury of alternative spiritual ideas in America that is is belongs to all of us, and we should we should have had them. We should have known that that there were these other ways, these other approaches. So many people had devoted their lives so that we would have access to them. But it was very difficult to come by them. I mean, even at the time that uh, that when I was working for Manley Hall in the late eighties, mid eighties, um, the if you happen into a metaphysical bookstore, um, you might be able to find some interesting stuff. There might be a small shelf in a, in a bookstore in a city, but uh, there wasn't a lot around. And and even earlier than that, um, I did an interview with Mary Kay Greer for the tarot section in the book. And she was telling me about how when she was a student in the 1960s in Florida, she couldn't find tarot cards. Is that fascinating? And now there are so many decks, it's almost uncountable. I was just looking at so many tarot cards at the bookstore chapters. Isn't it incredible? And I actually asked Adam McLean for the book, uh, who's, who has probably the world's greatest collection, how many decks are there? And he had to admit that he lost count. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, it, uh, no go ahead go ahead okay well what i was going to say is that that and then now we get into to misunderstandings in terms of definition so what do we mean by satan and what do satanists mean by satan is it is the satan of the catholic church the same satan of the church of satan yeah exactly is and and where did satan derive from as we see influences from pan and from the egyptian god set and what I would consider perhaps more sophisticated uh, visualizations of of the forces of what is being called evil, but might simply be a polarity, uh, strangers, uh, catastrophes of weather and such things uh, personified as deities, but not considered to be uh, evil and, and trying to steal our souls. So I think that that there is a lot of misunderstanding and a cult is the idea that a cult means evil is definitely an engineered misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah. And you're right, it's secrecy. And and I I will say I mean when people ask me about him, I did not know Manley Hall when he was really into the occult when he was younger. There's no doubt uh, that he was and some of the the stuff that he wrote then or some of the lectures he gave were under lock and key, along with the books of Alistair Crowley at the Philosophical Research Society when I was working there. Uh, he would let he would let me get at them and a few other people, but he didn't like people looking at them because he saw the damage that often occurred when people pursued those paths. And I was his screener for for quite a while, and I saw it too. Um, I had to talk to the people who needed to meet with him, and it was shocking. I mean, he. Many people uh, ran afoul of 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 uh, good psychological health as they pursued their spirituality, and he found that those who were attracted to the most glamorous aspects of the the so called occult were the most likely to do that. The the man that I knew was the most decent, wholesome, sweet human being I've ever met, and. Uh, his generosity and his kindness literally saved my life and, and changed my, my the entire trajectory of my life and of Tamara's life and of so many lives. And I found him to be just exactly what 
you would want your your spiritual inspiration to be somebody who was honest, decent, kind. Uh, he he moved in a very at that time in his life he was really into Taoism, really into Buddhism. He he seemed to me like some sort of a Taoist master walking around. There were so many synchronicities around him. So many strange little things that would happen, not huge, shocking, dramatic things, but just these little like he was in in harmony with the universe in some way. And uh, there was a vibe in, in his office, Graham, that was. I don't know what to compare it to. I just loved walking in there. And one of the saddest things was after he he left, he was still alive, but he was no longer well enough to to work. The, they cleared out the office to bring in this guy that was the principal organizer behind Live Aid. And um, I was asked to have a meeting with him because they wanted to bring me back uh, to sort of be the young, you know, new presence there. And when I had my meeting with him in that office, after they removed so much of the, the personal items that were there, it didn't have that feeling anymore at all. Wow, and it felt like like walking into an ancient temple or something. I, I don't know if it was just the the feeling of his presence or all the elevation of study that had gone on there for decades or what ex- or just his presence. But something about it had that feeling, you know, when you walk into a sacred space and it just feels so tranquil. And is he misunderstood now even more so? I mean, I think you put something in your book about that, and and I I kind of feel like some of these people that. Um, they kind of get uh, uh, demonized for globalism in a way back then in the early 1900s. Like I might throw HG Wells under that category as well. Mm-hmm. I've been reading, I've been reading his books and I don't agree with some of it, but I also uh, do agree with some of it. You know, he's very anti-war, very much just scared that the world was going to get destroyed by mm-hmm. young men who didn't have any meaning basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say that, Oh, yes, of course, he's very misunderstood. I, I, I was shocked to find him being talked about as a reptilian Illuminati. And, <laughs> and people talk, there's just a lot of that stuff. You tie him to Ronald Reagan. And, and this man was, I mean, when I knew him, he didn't, he didn't really have a political interest at all. He, he thought that politics was a criminal enterprise to some degree. And you just had to hope that some decent people would brave it and, and keep the Republic on track. But he... I think that he, you know, it's easy to do that when you look at the secret teachings of all ages. And we used to always laugh because there's there's one scene, uh, one of the nap uh, paintings looks like someone invoking a demon. And I think it's an invocation of an elemental, if I remember correctly. But we used to laugh in the library because it was inevitable that if some if somebody came in there who was devoutly Christian and they would they would open that book, they'd always open it to that plate and you'd see the look on their face. <laughs> yeah. And he was just presenting the, all of it, you know, the, the, the alternative history of spirituality in the world, including all of those things and asking us to, to give them all consideration in a in a sane and tolerant way as 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 being part of our heritage as human beings and part of the human experience but when you charge you get charged up with these ideas and and this is something that that I think is um 
part of the the anxiety of the times in that people are seeking meaning through uh, uncovering conspiracy theories and yeah. trying to find certainty where there isn't any. Right. And so rather than being focused on on how can we learn to not just tolerate, but to benefit from suspense, how can we be okay with not knowing while we learn? Can we hold paradoxical concepts at the same time and be be respectful and and interested in both of them? To me, that's where the greatest learning occurs and where the greatest soul learning occurs. And my experience has been that 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 so many people, it's like the the monkey mind run, runs away with you into these conspiracy theories, and and then on the other end of it something happens. They lose someone they love. It could even be a pet, you know, a beloved animal. Uh, but something happens that rocks their world and they find that that belief system doesn't hold up. That when they need, when they feel truly alone and grief stricken and, and terrified in an existential sense, that there's nothing there because the heart hasn't been involved because they, they can't hold paradoxical concepts because they have been all about trying to pin down facts when the experience of life is is a mystery. It's it's an amazing, uh, still unknown question mark. What all this is about, and That's so I think that 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 this betrays people into it using sort of a black and white kind of approach to life. So Manly Hall. Well, he's got to be be an Illuminati. He's got to be evil because he talks about Lucifer, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Madame Blavatsky used Lucifer as a good example. And how do you say to someone who may be a good friend of yours who's a devout Christian that that's not Lucifer in the way that that you think Lucifer? I mean, the <laughs> argument's lost right there. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. but clearly, that's not what Madame Blavatsky meant, and and that's not what Manley Hall meant. And Manley Hall was the furthest thing from from an evil occultist that, that I can imagine. I mean, um, he was he was a connoisseur of culture, of of art, and. I mean, it was the most amazing thing to hang out with him. Like, I don't know if you've read Tamara's book, but she writes about this. We were so lucky to get to go with him to museums and with he and his wife. And they would talk about these these Bodhisattva statues and and what year they were made and what the symbolism meant. And just, they just they just loved life and they loved intelligence and art and and all the 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 beauty of it. And it always reminds me of Plotinus. Um in his On the Beautiful, when he said that we should basically climb from the most basic kind of uh, material beauties up to the highest divine beauties, that that is a ladder for reaching transcendence. And to me, that's what he just absolutely personified, because he he would so surround himself with with beautiful objects of art and and would use them to teach. And so you you really would get an effortless education hanging around with you because he would be showing you beautiful objects and telling you stories while he was joking with you. And these jokes always had hidden meanings in them. They always were, were something that you needed to know. Amazing. Do you remember any of the jokes? Yes, I can tell you one. Yes. Um, I won't tell it as well as he was because he was a great storyteller. He was such a great storyteller. And he also kept a book. 
I feel like Graham should know the punchline. He's read no, a lot of Manly P. Hall. Um, okay, well, here's here. He had a book of jokes by his bed. That's what he read at night. <laughs> yeah, cartoons and jokes. And also books of stamps, because he was an avid stamp collector. He really enjoyed that. Um, but I'll tell you one that happened to me. So um, uh, Tamara also talks about this in her book. I was coming out of, I was uh, raised by atheists who were refugees who came from war to America. And they were very bitter, screwed up people. I was their only kid. They did not know how to raise me. I was no social contract in my life. I was brutalized in school and everywhere else. And I became a really evil little, can I say motherfucker? I can bleep it out. Um, And uh, so now I fell in love. That saved my life um, more than anything else did, but I was still a a liar, a thief and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I stumbled on the secret teachings of all ages, actually on the encyclopedic outline. It was the small black and white, the first black and white edition. I think it's the, I can't remember, sixth or seventh um, at the Bodhi Tree bookstore and put it on layaway. It was like 50 bucks and it was too much for me. I was like the starving musician. And my whole thing was nihilism and my band was devoted to hate and, and all that, that kind of thing. I always wore black and, but the book just fascinated me. I thought it was the darkest of the dark, you know, like, like here it is, the occult secrets. Now I'll become an evil genius. And I started reading the book and it, it completely transformed me, uh, opened my mind to the amazing beauty of culture and all the, the brave souls out there who, who found these arcane bits of information and risked their lives to share them with the, with posterity and and then a friend of ours told me that Manley Hall was still alive, which I couldn't believe it because he seemed the book was from the 20s and he seemed kind of the picture of him. He didn't look like he was all that young. And and um, but, you no, know, he was still lecturing not far away from where I lived. I was terrified to go there, you know, having been who I was. And it took me months to get the courage when I finally went. Uh, I had been going through this kind of mania because the same friend who told me that he was lecturing there was into the whole Edgar Casey earthquake thing. And she was getting ready to move to Virginia Beach and she had scared the shit out of me. And so I was like, oh, my God, we got to move to Virginia Beach because everything's going to end, you know. And well, at the first lecture I attended, he looked right at me <laughs> and he said, he said, uh, fear of earthquakes and other irrational obsessions that are really just guilt for a life that's not being well lived. I was like, holy shit, did that just happen? Now, later, when I worked for him, I found out that he did that a lot. And even more so, what I found out was that he couldn't see me. His eyes were really <laughs> bad at that point. Um, we were blurry, colorful blurs out there. So um, he but he did have this way of doing that. There was this among the synchronicities that I mentioned earlier. So he um, had. I, you know, I wanted to, to do anything to be involved there because I was so impressed by him and by the people. They were all so kind and the kind of discussions that you overheard were amazing to me. Um, so I volunteered to do anything, just clean up. I mean, whatever they, they didn't need anybody. They, they wanted to hire 
my wife because she had office skills. And, um, but I had experience with languages. And so he was working on the alchemical Biblio and he found out that I could read German and, and a couple other languages. He, that was good enough for him. And he called me into the office. Um, it was unbelievable. What an experience, you know, uh, the whole phalanx of the old women who ran PRS were standing behind him on, on every side of him. He was smiling at me and said he used kind of a WC field tax and he's like, come in and make yourself miserable. <laughs> so I won't, I won't go on with that side of the story. I'll get to the point of the joke. Um, you can find that stuff in Tamara's book, but so we became very good friends. I worked with him every day and he looked over my work every day and uh, I did other, other work for him as his research assistant, then as his screener and also as his designated substitute lecturer, we got to hang out a lot. But one of the first times that we did, he invited us to come over for dinner. Now, this was real early on. And I have to tell you that I was walking around in that library looking at some of those books and I wanted them. And I was somebody that I took shit when I wanted it. But I wouldn't do it to him, you know, but it was a struggle. I, I, I really there was these weren't even like the super expensive ones. They were just these these little rare books that for some reason the subject matter attracted me. And one of them was actually, ironically, Alexander Wilder. And, and I wanted to just take them because the library didn't have any control over what was in there or what was going on. And books were were, were stolen from there. But I kept telling myself, there's no way you're going to do that. That's, you know, don't do it. So I go over to dinner and after dinner, he tells us a joke and he says, well, you know, back in the day when California was being uh, colonized by the, the Spanish, there was a Catholic priest who was helping to build the missions and helping to civilize the area. And he would have these gatherings traveling around California. He would, he would bring uh, all the local people in the area together, he would give a sermon and then he would pass around the hat for donations of anything they could do. Hopefully the rich would give jewelry or gold pieces and the poor could give a little bit of money. And, and from that money, they would build the missions. Well, one day he came across a wounded outlaw and he nursed him back to health. During the process, he asked the outlaw, what is your name? And he said, I ain't saying. And he said, where did you come from? He said, I ain't saying. And he said, well, um, obviously you're on the run. What did you do? I ain't saying. All right. Well, then you can just hang around with me. I will call you Dominic since you won't give me your name. That's an honorable name. And as long as you, you know, act as I wish, and you're honest, and you're a good person, you can stay with me, and you can handle some things for me, and we can travel. Well, they were about to arrive at the best meeting that they would see all year. This is where the wealthiest people in California lived, and this is where he expected every year to, to get the predominant amount of, of wealth for the year. So, 
he gives a fiery sermon. He is just in the mood and he carries, gets carried away. And he's, he's talking about God and generosity in California and what they can do and what the missions will accomplish and just exhausts himself in moving everybody. And everybody's very excited about what he has to say. And they all go by and, you know, so good to see you and all this. And then as they all have left, suddenly the priest is extremely upset. Oh my God, what have I done? Dominic says, what happened? And he said, I forgot to pass around the hat. And Dominic says, no, no, you told me to do it. And he said, no, I, I didn't. And he said, you did. You were right in the middle of your prayers. And he said, Dominic, frisk him. <laughs> now, if you know your, your Catholicism, <laughs> that's a pretty funny punchline. <laughs> I, but I, I don't for me... It. Pardon? I don't get it. Um, Dominic Fisk, uh, I believe, I'm not, I'm not Catholic, but something like Domini Fiscum or something like that is one of the, the penultimate parts of the, the big blessing that the priest gives. So Dominic Friscum is how the outlaw heard it. Got it. Um, but the point of the joke is that here I was contemplating stealing stuff from him. And he's telling me about a priest who takes in an outlaw and and then actually gives me the punchline, Dominic Friscum, right? So I walked out of there and I, I just thought, holy shit, he knows. Now, did he know? You know, was it simply a synchronicity? But at the time, I was convinced that he saw right through me and he was basically telling me a joke to say, don't you steal my, my books. <laughs> especially especially after the earthquake you know where he's looking looking into exactly soul, yeah basically you know telling yeah. him not to be so, afraid of earthquakes yeah yeah so that's an example and and uh it took me a while actually you know when i first heard the joke i kind of i had the same reaction you did i was like huh because i didn't know <laughs> what that meant you know i just and, thought of like the monks kind of like chanting domini like you know exactly I, I, I kinda, that's yeah. that is what it's from and and so when I walked out, I wasn't, you know, the truth is that it was my, my, it was Tamara who turned me on to what it meant because, um, as we were, we were driving home, she said to me, uh, you do realize what that joke was about. Cause I had told her, you know, I said, man, I'm having a hard time here. <laughs> now here's the other funny thing right after that. Now that was it for me. Cause I, I thought, okay, okay. That was him saying, look, I took you in kid, you know, don't, don't treat me like that. And right after that, he told me that I could take home any book I wanted and keep I it as long as I gonna, wanted. I knew that was going to come up. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So did you so, pick the Wilder one? Or? I didn't keep them, but I, I did take them home and study them and took notes. And some of those notes wound up in the book. Right on. Wow. So did you end up grabbing the Wilder book too? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did. And I brought them all right back. And in fact... One of my jobs, self-elected, became finding the rare books that were in the library that belonged in the vault because they were too valuable. Wow. They didn't seem valuable to him because because back when he bought them, they were sort of uh, throwaways. But but so much time had passed that I knew from going by local bookstores that they were actually quite rare. So they were moved into the vault so they could be kept safe because those doors were just open and the librarians didn't really keep an eye on everybody. It was such everything was such good natured trust. Before I forget to ask you, what was Tamara's book then? 
what did uh, what's the one she just came um with? tamara's book is called um, making the ordinary extraordinary my seven years in occult los angeles with manly palmer hall that's and, published by inner traditions okay and awesome. uh, that's it's a it's an amazing read she's a wonderful writer it's a little short book but it's all about our friendship with him and she even gives the uh, marie hall's pancake recipe for uh uh, Manly Hall's favorite dessert. <laughs> so you can actually experience Manly Hall's favorite dessert if you wish. Nice. Where can people track down your book without stealing it? <laughs> uh, now you might, that makes me think of uh, steal this book. You must be familiar with that. Um, it, it's um, it's going to be everywhere. It's not shipping, I'm told, until January 31st, um, or that's when the bookstores will start shipping it. But you'll be able to get it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or hopefully at, at many local stores. And, of course, you can also buy it from Inner Traditions, which is what they prefer. Coming right on, on audio? this has been – is it, yeah, um, it going to be on audio? You know, there's no audio. They didn't ask me to do one. Um, and I have to admit relief. <laughs> <laughs> You have a great voice. You would uh, you would make a good book. Oh, thank you. Well, at some point, definitely, and I I would like to to uh, read some of those chapters so they're available for people who can't uh, read them for themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we should do this again. I know I'm going to have a whole bunch of questions for you as I'm reading all these old books as well, and and uh, stuff's going to keep popping up, and I'm going to keep bumping into the stuff that you you wrote in your book, probably. So maybe we should do this again in a, in a few months or something. Anytime, Graham. Just yeah, uh, is- get in touch, and I'll be happy to be there. We'll also be releasing another book uh, in the end of August of next year, a book that Tamara and I wrote which is called The Magic of the Orphic Hymns, a new translation for the modern mystic is going to be released, which also contains a a big historical survey. Same thing, all this new research on the history of the Orphic Hymns and their influence on Western culture. Um, Very fascinating what those Orphic hymns, the influence they've had is really uh, tremendous. Yeah. I noticed that on, on inner traditions website too. That's the one I thought Mm -hmm. you were going to say that, um, that she had written previously, but um, maybe, maybe we'll have you on uh, when that comes out then in July or August. Sure. Either way. I mean, if you want to talk about other, if you have questions about things from, from this book, you know, I'm always happy to speak about it. Yeah. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Good luck with uh, the release of your book. And and, Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Happy really holidays. appreciate it. Really nice to meet you guys. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Happy New Year to you. Keep on your good paths. You too. Yeah, you we too. will. Thanks. Okay. Goodbye. Ciao. Bye-bye. And that was our chat with Ronnie Pontiac. What'd you think, yeah. buddy? Well, dude, I mean, I, I have a whole bunch of questions here. I mean, I wanted to get into all kinds of stuff. But, I mean, he, I he did like such I a good like job of explaining the everything. weeds for a lot of it. <laughs> Well, he, you guys were in well, pretty a lot deep. of it's new. I mean, a lot of it's new, dude. Like this is all stuff that uh, people really aren't going to be aware of. It's, it's new stuff, man. That's, that's why I thought this was uh, a really interesting book. I mean, I, I really actually liked what he said about holding to sort of uh, the paradox in your, in your mind, like sort of not sort of having to go one way or the other with it, you know, learning without not knowing or learning without knowing. I think those are important skills. I, I appreciate what he was saying there. 
And I mean, for people that are listening still, I mean, ISIS unveiled Blavatsky's books are on audio by us on adultbrain.ca. The secret teachings. Uh, we got manly. Pe- oh, I meant to mention to him too, that we're, uh, that we're reading the all seeing eye. I mean, you know, Manly's got quite a sense of humor in that uh, in that uh, all seeing eye book. Practical or, occultism, I think, was Levatsky, The yeah. Secret Doctrines. Uh, yeah. There's another Manly P. Hall one too. Uh, the Secret Teaching of All Ages and Lectures on Occult Philosophy. Uh, lectures on ancient ancient uh, lectures on was it called Lectures on Occult Philosophy? I lectures think. on ancient lectures on ancient philosophy. I think or. Uh, one of those two. Yeah. It's yeah. one of those two. Big thanks to Ronnie for coming on the show. Big thanks to you guys for listening. Even bigger thanks if you're one of the people who choose to support our work. If you're getting some value from the show and you th- you think it's worth something, let us know what it's worth over at America.ca slash support. Sign up for a monthly, make a one-time donation today. Uh, you know, we can't do this show without you. We need that support. We need those support wheels greased and lubing as we head into this 2023, the 10th year of the show. Yeah. Uh, head out all, all those audiobooks you were talking about over at adultbrain.ta. Lectures on ancient philosophy is the Son one. Son of a bitch. Oh, yeah. So you can also head over to grammarica.ca slash chats. You can check out our other podcasts, grammaricaoutlaw.ca. We just had Randall Carlson on there. It's had some fantastic episodes lately. People have been loving it. And uh, I think that's about it. Anything else? Yeah. Spam, grammaricamerica.com. Yeah. Other than that, we love you guys. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Somehow I built a rocket ship Out of the stuff dreams are made and popsicle sticks Please look at my rocket ship schematic Tell me it can fly to the moon Tell me I'm not a lunatic